Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we've got Phil Kramer. Phil Kramer has been on the podcast before and I've gotten great feedback. Uh, we did quite a bit of talking about uh, coos deer uh, down in Sonora, Mexico, and we're going to talk about some of that today. But uh, first and foremost, uh, Phil had a elk tag in the state of Arizona and, and um, as always, put in a, a bunch of time and uh, had a great hunt. I've only seen it on Instagram, a few pictures here and there, and haven't actually talked to Phil. Uh, but I've got you on the line. Phil, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Jay. Thank you. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Um, I'm actually back in Arizona. Uh, I drove uh, from uh, Colorado down to Arizona, and um, we're going to be here for about a week. Uh, I've got some things to take care of here, and then I'm actually going to head back up to Colorado to uh, the Ot 6 Ranch, and um, hopefully by then the mule deer will be rutting and we can take some inventory. We've, we've gotten pretty good inventory of the elk. Uh, a friend of mine bought this ranch in third week of September. It's about 40,000 contiguous acres. And um, it's a really, really neat setup. We've got a bunch of elk on the property, not tons and tons of deer. Um, and I, I think one of the reasons is we have so many elk that, you know, it, it kind of pushes the deer a little bit. And um, we're hopefully going to be able to improve some of our deer habitat and maybe um, increase those numbers a little bit. Um, we've got uh, lion hunting uh, season in Colorado opening on November 20th. Unlike Arizona, they actually have a season, and not only do they have a season, they have a quota. Um, so I want to say there's like four units that the ranch, or there's four units kind of around the ranch, and uh, there's only 15 lions out of those units that can be harvested. So um, now, obviously, we're not going to shoot 15 lions on the ranch, but our goal is to kind of hit it hard early and um, see if we can get a few of those lions out of the quota that you know to come off the ranch. And um, Hunter Meekum. Uh, actually out of Tropic, Utah, uh, works works with me or for me up there, and we work together um, on on kind of the hunting aspect of the ranch. And he, he comes from a long uh, uh, his, historic family, I should say, uh, in the dry ground lion hunting. And he's 22 or 3 years old and, and a young kid, but he's probably got more experience than a lot of houndsmen out there. He's been following his dad and uncle around for since he was two years old. They actually have pictures of him on um, treed lions uh, at two years old. And um, so I, it's going to be a learning experience for me. I've done very, very little um, lion hunting and certainly very little dry ground lion hunting. So um, I'm going to soak it up and enjoy it. And um, But enough about me, Phil. You had a uh, elk hunt. Uh, in Arizona, and um, saw that you, it looks like you had a great hunt. I did. I did. Uh, you know, as always in Arizona, the first part's you know getting lucky enough to uh, draw that tag, and I was was that uh, lucky this year where I did draw the tag. And you kind of mentioned there that put in some time, and I definitely ran quite a few trail cameras again as normal. Um, we actually had a really wet uh, summer. 
So some of my trail cameras ended up getting drowned in water, but nonetheless, <laughs> it, uh, it, it worked out. So it was definitely a, a great hunt um, for whatever reason, whether it be the moisture that we had, uh, you know, the amount of feed that was up there, the the cows were in great shape, and I think that spurred a pretty early rut for Arizona standards. Uh, actually, a, a little too early in some cases since the season was, you know, a week later this year than normal. And uh, by the time actually the season started, some of the bulls were broke already and they had been wallowing and, you know, rubbing and grouping, herding cows for a while already. So the first part of the season kind of got into it uh, hit or miss, you know, where I was at. And there were pockets of, of bulls bugling really hard and then other pockets were they were kind of out by themselves and cruising and, and uh, you know, still kind of trying to get back in the swing of things after that first, first I, I don't know what you want to call it, but the first time that the a cows flurry. came in. And, <laughs> yeah, the first flurry, yeah, you bet. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's funny, I've seen it on years where, you know, everything's green, you know, flowers are bloomed up, everything's feeling good, and cows are fleshy, and they seem to just kind of go off. You know, sometimes September, you know, four or five days into September, they all start start cranking. What's funny is it always seems like the years when the hunts are, say, that 9th, 10th, you know, 11th, they seem to be way behind and not cranking. But it always seems, I, I don't know why, seems that when those hunt dates get pushed back a little bit, you know, that 14th, 15th uh, time frame in there, uh, that for whatever reason they crank early. Um, I don't think there's any correlation between the two, but, it, you know, it just seems to always work out that way. A um, couple questions. So you, you focused uh, some trail cameras in the unit. You focused attention early, I assume, on some dirt tanks. Sounds like with the monsoon rain, literally did you show up and, like, your, the tanks, you know, went from being, say, you know, 20 yards across to being 200 yards across, like literally where your cameras were submerged and under, underwater? That's exactly what I'm saying. Um, they got up there early, you know, in June, um, and and put a lot of cameras out on different water holes, and most of them were all dirt tanks, and they were so low that I was actually having to put, you know, fence posts up because there wasn't a tree anywhere close enough to the water level to get a good enough picture. So put a bunch of posts up, put a bunch of cameras out, and then towards the end of July, first part of August, we got those just torrential monsoon storms and the ponds that were just a little puddle then became a miniature lake. And there were, I think, four of them that you couldn't even see the top of my post, let alone the camera. I assume that was a total loss as far as once those cameras get wet or did, did, were you able to, to um, salvage the SD cards? Actually, the SD cards in all of them came out great, and I've had that experience before where a lot of people are like, well, why are you even wasting your time? It's not going to be good, you know, but I went ahead and swam out there and got the cards and the cameras and the lock and everything else off, and actually, in the grand scheme of things, the camera's the only part that gets lost in that scenario. The You know, the lock box and the cable and the SD card are all still good, so... Definitely interesting. interesting to see. <laughs> so. Yeah, so I mean, is that, I mean, I didn't realize SD cards could get wet and still be functional. Obviously, you've proven that. Do you, I mean, 
do you think it's a deal where if they get, I mean, I, I, I just assume that if they got wet, they're, they're, they're hosed. Do you think that was an isolated case, or no? Do you think if SD cards get wet, they're probably fine? I've, I've had it happen to me a number of times, and some of my friends have as well, where the SD cards always come out good. We have yet to lose one where water ruined the card. Now, obviously, when you pull it out of the camera, you don't want to immediately put pop it in a reader or your laptop. You want to let it dry completely. But we've always been able to salvage a card, get the pictures off of them, and then continue to use them just like always. Uh, that's fantastic. That's actually good to know. Um, when you were, were you kind of taking a shotgun approach in putting up cameras? And the reason I ask is uh, I've really never run cameras, and I've talked about on the podcast before where I'm, you know, I go back and forth whether I'm on the fence or, you know, I don't know what you would call me, but um, I always feel like I'm going to screw somebody else's hunt up, so I've just kind of never really been, you know, big into cameras. But on this property in Colorado, it's 100% private, and um, we actually got 100 uh, stealth cams. Uh, we got 25 of those 4K and 75 of those um, G34 Pros. And i got to be honest with you, I've just kind of fallen in love. Um, obviously, the, the the my friend that bought the ranch bought the cameras, and they're his cameras. But you know, Hunter and I have basically been in charge of putting those cameras out, and so I'm. It's a huge learning curve for me, having hardly ever set cameras out, in trying to get photos of elk and deer and what have you, like where to set them, how to set them. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of been a sponge at talking to a lot of my buddies and asking them, you know, what do they focus on? You know, are there certain tricks that they found? And I'm curious to ask you, Phil, when it, when it comes to elk, um, what is your strategy for setting cams? You know, is it just simply a shotgun approach to just shotgun them everywhere you can? Or do you have kind of a, you know, a tactical approach, much like your Tuesday when you set cams? For the elk, it's a it's a lot more of a, like you say, a shotgun approach. And the main reason why I do it that way is because typically early when the bulls still are in velvet, they're in a totally different area than when they rub and start getting with the cows. So when I go up early and put the cameras, I try and cover as much country as I can. One, getting an inventory on the bulls, but not so much their location. The, it, the location that I'm looking for is where I'm getting the majority of the cows because, as we know, those bulls are going to show up there. But I like to get them out early so that way I can see the quality of the bulls and kind of get an idea on what I'm after and, and where those bulls might be starting and have a good idea where they're going to end up. And for elk, that's that's been my strategy, and it, it's worked pretty well for me. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to pass that 350 bull if you know there's a 360 or a 370 bull running around in the unit. And that's been a big help because you know that, man, that, that 350 bull is a big bull. And, and you know that going into it. But if you have that picture of that 370 bull, it makes it a lot easier to go ahead and let that 350 bull walk by you. You know, it's a, it's a lot like, my strategy with with sheep hunting and I try and when people ask me about you know what should I do I've drawn a sheep tag um, you know I always tell them take inventory knowing what's in your unit knowing the quality of rams that are there uh, it is so important regardless of how big they are 
as far as inches, but knowing, well, there's, you know, here's a good ram, but we know there's five rams bigger than that ram, like heavier, longer, you know, like bigger rams. Just knowing that will, in my mind, help you be able to harvest bigger animals. And the same thing goes with elk, like what you're saying. You're basically taking inventory, trying to get a sense of antler growth. How is that year performing? Like, are they are the elk really growing as, as, as good as you want them to be? And, man, you've got, you know, five bulls over 350 on your camera. You know, normally probably a 350 bull would be your target bull, but, you know, on good years when all of a sudden, you know, you've got a bunch of handful of bulls or a bunch of bulls over that, um, it, it, it helps you because you kind of have a sense of what's out there. Without a doubt, it does. Um, you know, just what you said, it, it allows you to get that inventory. It, it allows you to see how each bull finished, what, what they ended up doing. You know, did they finish strong on their top end, or did they have really good fronts, and then they petered out by the time they got to their back? With those cameras and that inventory, then, then you know what you're looking at going into it. And you might not get the opportunity at one of those top-end bulls, but you know that that chance is there, that you can go ahead and pass that 350 bull that any other day would be a shooter, but you know that year was a great year for the antler growth, or two or three new bulls moved in that you hadn't seen, you know, seen previously, and that opportunity there keeps a guy going. It allows you to make that grind every day when things kind of get tough, as elk hunting does, if, you know, you ride that, that high and low where you get into a pocket and bulls are screaming, and you know you can wade through some of the bulls that typically you would be making a hunt on or making a stock on. And to me, that that's just you know part of the reason why I love to do it because it gives you that drive and it gives you something to keep working for. And just like you equated it to the sheep hunting, if you know there's a bigger ram there, it makes it a lot easier to, to go ahead and see that, that ram that any other person might say man we need to go after that and say yep that's a nice ram but it's not what we're looking for and you just keep on going so, yeah very for sure um, for sure talk to me a little bit about camera placement um you you mentioned um the steel post um they're in colorado in places where we don't have trees or what have you to put uh, the cameras out i've been banging steel posts but my experience with those steel posts it's just like a. It's just like you got a a, a a flashing light, and they come straight. Like they'll skip the the water or whatever reason they're coming to that spot. And they'll go straight to the pole. <laughs> they'll start raking spikes, especially spikes and raghorn bulls. Love to just come straight to the camera, start licking it, uh, start rubbing on it. I'm, I'm curious if that's an isolated Colorado thing or. You know, are you finding the elk in Arizona? I mean, when you put those um, uh, fencing stakes up with a camera on it, do they just come right to it and start, you know, just mauling the camera, basically? It's it's not isolated to Colorado, and I wish it, it was, <laughs> but unfortunately it's not. And it's not just elk. It is cattle, too. If there are cattle in the area, they will go directly to that camera and rub on it for hours at a time, and you'll, be, you'll get it a hundred pictures of nothing but black fur from a cow rubbing up against it. But what I typically do... Do you think it's, do, they just smell... Do you think they just smell 
you know, smell our, our, our scent on there and, and maybe they see the infrared and some of the stuff and they're just curious and they just come and mess with it? I think it's curiosity more than anything. Something new showed up where they hadn't seen it before and, and they just go to it. And I think they check it out and then they smell it and they lick it. And just like a kid almost, you know, they want to yeah. taste it. They want to they wanna feel it and try and figure out what it is. But yeah. what I've done to kind of try and and prevent that, and it doesn't work all the time, but if there's any deadfall in the area, I'll take some sticks and I'll make a triangle basically around that T-post. And even though it's not high enough, you know, to interfere with your camera, if you can put it on the ground, typically their curiosity is not enough where they want to step over a dead log to get to the post. Interesting. Okay. So That's a great tip. Really good luck. So in other words, you, you'll have the center, the post in the middle, and then kind of have a triangle built around it. I mean, do you, do you like build up several pieces or just kind of lay it out there where they have to kind of maul through the brush to get to it? Basically, it's, it depends on where you're at and what you have to work with. But I found even if it's just a foot high and you, you put that barrier there, it's something that they actually have to go over to get to your camera, and most of the time, I found the curiosity is not enough for them to make them step over that dead log to go up and rub on your camera. So it, it's worked really good, and obviously, if it's in an area where there's more uh, deadfall readily available, I'll put it up higher. But normally, it's just one log across each other, forming a triangle, and nine times out of ten, they won't step across it and go mess with your camera. Oh, that's cool. I just learned something right there. Um, what about camera placement? Um, you know, people say place them either facing north or facing south. Um, I, I assume you try and face them one or the other. Do you have a specific angle that you always say if, if you had to choose, this is the angle you would aim? It depends on the time of year. And what I mean by that is later in the year, you can get away with a little bit more because your your days are a lot shorter, so you have a lot less sun. Um, you know, in the summer times, then it really becomes more critical because that sun's up in the air. You know, in the sky longer, it's more visible. It's heating the background up, so then you have more of the blowing trees, blowing grass come into play. But if I had my choice, every time I'd try and point it due north or due south, and then especially around water, I'll try and put two of them on the same post, and then that way you're not getting a directly north and south, but you're getting more of a 45, and you're able to cover a lot more of that water source or the travel way that you're trying to pick up having the animals come across. So Interesting. Interesting. So if you're at the mouth of a tank, say you're, say you're on one side of a tank, um, you know how they kind of like the sand trap where the water comes in and so you would, instead of sticking a stick on one side or the other, you would always, or a lot of time, you would actually put two cameras and have them face in opposite directions. So in other words, you're covering your your angle of of cover, you know, that the camera's covering is actually twice as much. You're getting two completely different opposite angles kind of at 45 on each other. Without a doubt. You bet. And the okay. other thing that that does, it allows that animal to be in front of the camera longer. Whereas if you just have one camera pointed straight on, you're you're banking on that animal basically crossing the path of that detection area, 
and staying it. Whereas if you're 45, you're picking up a lot more of the bank, say, of the pond or the tank coming in, where typically you're going to catch the animal coming as soon as he starts to come in to the detection area, and then you're going to have him all the way through to the edge of the water and then his exit as well. So it gives you a lot more angles where you can then pick the animal apart or have a better chance on catching that, that perfect shot that you're looking for. Okay, that's great. Good stuff. Good, good stuff. So uh, as your summer was progressing, um, and then we're going to dive into your hunt, but as the summer was progressing, like at what stage, you know, like take, um, you know, say J June 1st and then maybe July 1st, what did you notice as far as the different stage of antler growth? Like a six-point bull June 1st, what was he? And then July 1st, what was he? Okay. In June, we were, I mean, what I was seeing on the cameras and, uh, it was just basically you're getting your ones and your twos out, and that's it. And very, very little, even on the, the bigger bulls that bulls turned into the, being the older, you know, more mature bulls, there's still just one and two and then maybe a beam. And then you take that into July, and it just it just blew up. What I was really surprised about this year, though, is as early as the middle of August, 1st of August, I was having bulls that were rubbed. And, I mean, really? fully developed, rubbed their velvet, and starting to travel with cows by the end of August. And I was just like, holy smokes, the rut's going to be over. It's going to be over. Hunt yeah. 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 <laughs> and I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I have pictures of bulls rubbing their velvet right in front of a camera, like, August 15th. And I'm like, this is insane, you know. I, I, we need to be hunting now. So, yeah, I, I think that attributes, though, to the, you know, the cows being in really good shape and everybody's kind of feeling their oats and got with it early. I think that so, was definitely due to the moisture and the feed and everybody being happy. Normally, for the listeners out there that, that, that don't know, um, usually about the 7th, 8th, ninth through about the 15th, even on into the 20th of August, you know, you see most of your your elk rubbing their velvet off. But what I heard you say is like that August 1st that you had multiple bulls rubbed out and, and already polished and, and by the 1st of August. That's correct. And it, I had never seen that before. Um, as an early it seems like witnessed. a week to two weeks early, doesn't it? Yep, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Interesting. Because normally so you by the, some, you know, the, go ahead. Oh, so, uh, I was just going to say, normally by the end of August, you still have some of your younger bulls that are still packing velvet. And they're, you know, yeah. then they're starting to rub and kind of get caught up with everybody else. And this year, I don't think I had any bulls by the middle of August that were still in velvet. They, they were all rubbed off and polished and ready to go. And then the mass migration starts. It seems as though as soon as they rub their velvet, You've got a lot of those bulls moving, whether they move out of the unit uh, or just move around. Um, and then you probably noticed an influx of completely different bulls. Talk a little bit about that transition period. And as a hunter, you know, did, it, did, you, did you have any giants or anything that you were like, holy smokes, and then they're gone, and then maybe a new bull that you're like, whoa, what's this? Show up. Tell me about that. I did, and for me, that's one of the most frustrating times 
trying to keep tabs on those bulls, especially if you find one that you're targeting and say, this is a bull I want to hunt, this is a bull I want to try and kill. And then he goes on what I call the walkabout. And trying to find out where he ends up just will drive you insane at times. And I had two bulls early um, hitting a tank, and they were very nocturnal all the time at night, very big bulls. And I'm like, I want to focus on these bulls. And they flat out disappeared on me by, I want to say it was the 1st of September, and I never saw them again. I mean, through the hunt, after the hunt, gone. And to this day, I don't know where they went. But in the midst of trying to find them, I actually found a couple more, and I said, that surprised me, and I have no idea where they came from. I didn't have a picture of them all summer long, and then all of a sudden they showed up. And I think they were, you know, taking place of those other bulls that had left, and now they're stepping in saying, okay, where's the cows? And they spent two or three days in an area, and then, you know, three or four days later, I'd pick them up on another camera five miles from it. And what I what I found this year, that even after the bulls were getting with the cows, they were, they were doing a lot of moving. And I think because the feed was such that they didn't have to stay confined in one area, and they just kind of, were being elk and feeding, and then they'd, wherever they ended up for their bedding area, they'd get up and feed in whatever direction they wanted, get with the wind in their face. And it made it really hard to basically track or, or stay on top of some of these bulls that I wanted to hunt until about the second week of the season, and then it's like everything kind of settled down and got in a routine, and I was able to stay with the bulls um, for three or four days at a time, and ultimately up on into the chance of actually hunting and harvesting one so what kind of strategy did you take into the hunt it was an archery hunt um right archery what what type of strategy were you uh going into the hunt were you were you going to try and uh use and then as the hunt went on did you stick with that strategy or did the strategy evolve well, I was fortunate enough that I had three or four of my really good hunting buddies able to take some time off and, and go up with me and spend, you know, they, a couple of them were able to spend the whole hunt if it took it, and one or two were able to spend three or four days at a time and, and um, come and go. So the approach that I took is when we got up there, the bulls were, were not talking hardly at all. They might bugle three or four times in the dark, and as soon as the sun came up, that was it. So what I was doing in the morning is, is just covering country, trying to get bulls fired up, trying to get in on them, seeing what they were. And then in the evenings, I was set in water. And that went on for about the first week. Um, and I was passing some really good bulls at water. But the funny thing was they would come in, they would wallow, they wouldn't bugle, they wouldn't say a word. And it, it kind of made me want to stay with that strategy on, on sitting in water every evening but then what my friends would do when I was out sitting in water is they would get up on a high point and try and glass and everything and, and then report back at camp and we'd compare notes and then make a game plan for the next morning. And in the process of doing that, we were basically in the morning tracking this one large group of elk trying to get in on it and they just kept moving and moving and moving and 
the very when they weren't vocal, it made it very difficult to get in and see them without spooking them. And we were we were taking a very cautious approach because we really didn't have any competition uh, with other hunters in the area. So, we, you know, instead of getting aggressive, we were kind of staying back and not pushing them. And we kept doing that and kept doing that. And I I mean I had resigned myself to sitting on water every night. I was like, this is going to be my best chance at killing one of these bigger bulls is sitting on water. And that happened right up until, like I said, about the first weekend of the hunt. And one day we were out, um, my friends were out glassing while I was sitting water, got back, and they said, hey, some more bulls showed up in this area, probably ought to go take a look in the next morning. And we did, and just got into a pocket where there were three or four bulls that had five or six cows each, and they were fairly vocal enough. They're vocal enough where we could kind of keep tabs on them until we could look at them. And sure enough, on about the fourth bull that we were able to put eyes on, he was of that caliber that I definitely wanted to pursue. And from then on, it was game on. It was it was there every morning, every evening. I totally gave up the water strategy, and that was the only bull I hunted. Um, it, uh, it was fr- both frustrating and fun at the same time. The good part was I was able to see them every morning, every evening, and kind of keep tabs on them, and that made it a lot of fun. The other thing is it it allowed my hunting partners and I to all kind of have the same goal right there where we could get eyes and and maybe see them if they went this way or see them if they went that way, and it, it really put the meat to the hunt, so to speak. I mean, it was all hands on deck. This is our goal. This is what we're going to do. And it, it, uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, did you one get morning there? Uh, I did not get that bull. Uh, it, <laughs> as usual, crazy turn of events with elk hunting. Um, I got in there one morning and I'd made, actually made two stalks on the bull that I wanted to kill. Um, he was for three days, he was only with two cows and a yearling. So it, it made it a great opportunity to really put time in trying to get close to him because it wasn't a big group of eyes or noses that you were trying to beat every time. And I'd made two stalks on him one morning where that didn't work out, where I had to back out and regroup. And another bull came over the hill. These two bulls squared off, and it was the most epic battle that I, I could have, I couldn't have dreamed one any better than this. To the point where I missed a golden opportunity. <laughs> I was so wrapped up in watching this fight that I, I totally forgot that I was hunting. I mean, I had a bow in my hand, and I, 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 was, I couldn't move. I was just transfixed by this sight taking place in front of me. And these two bulls went at it for 15, 20 minutes. Finally, about halfway through, I figured out what I was doing and took off after them. <laughs> uh, but it, it was just unreal. And in that process, once the fight was over, the big bull ended up with all the cows, and they ended up going out of this basin that they had been in. And that led me the next day, actually, um, looking for that bull into uh, what I call the frenzy, um, where a couple cows had obviously came in, and the bulls were just going crazy. It was one of those mornings that you you dream of, then you I know you've experienced it, and for any of those elk hunters that have, they know exactly what I'm talking about because 
it's just a bull here, a bull there, a satellite bull going nuts over on this side. Maybe the herd bull's bugling. Maybe he's just kind of staying quiet, but you can track the whole thing because it's just so loud and, and everything's going crazy. Well, we had that morning. And when I was moving in on the herd bull, I thought for sure that it was this big 7 by 7 I'd been after for the last four or five days. And actually got in to a point where we could see him, and it wasn't. Um, it was this six-by-six six that I ended up taking. Um, I had no idea he had been there. Um, I found out later he had been in that area for the whole time, and I had never once seen him. None of my friends had seen him. Um, but he ended up with 18 cows, and he wasn't bugling himself, but all the other bulls around him were, so I was able to keep track on him. And I just... Stayed kind of parallel with him until he got down in the bottom of a canyon, and I was able to sneak right in and get in amongst all of his cows. I, I never called, never made a sound, um, just sto totally stalking in on him. And I had a friend with me, and he was back 30, 40 yards behind me. And he saw that the, I had gotten into position, and the bull was coming up out of the bottom of the canyon. And he actually was at a different angle, and cow called and stopped the bull a little too soon as so often happens. But anyway, uh, the bull kind of snuck up through the trees a little bit, and I ended up with one opening at 43 yards. It was a, a very hard quartering away shot, but I felt like I could take it. Um, you know, it was one of those situations that you practice so long for that when the time comes, you have the confidence to go ahead and let the arrow go, and I did. And I actually hit him back further than I would have liked but it was such a hard quartering shot that with the angle it was able to get up in there um, he crossed the canyon after the shot ended up running into the, the cows again on the other side and that kind of made me a little nervous but then he soon left the cows uh, crossed back under the or into the canyon and then started up the other side we gave him some time trailed him and, and fortunate enough that there he was and it, it was one of those bulls that just has that look that I've, I've always wanted to, to get as an elk hunter. Um, it has the big whale tails and, and long force and long fists. And I've never really killed a bull like that. So I, uh, I was definitely overcome with emotion and joy. And just it's why we do it. <laughs> it, it, was, it was That's unreal. awesome. That is awesome. And he's a pretty dang good bull, isn't he? He is, he is. He's actually my biggest bull that I've myself have personally taken. Uh, he ended up stretching the tape a little over 378 inches. And uh, just just a beautiful bull. He's only 33 inches wide. So I think he's got a little over 60 inches of mass. And, and uh, it just it couldn't have worked out any better. Even though it wasn't the target bull that I was after, it it's definitely one I'm proud of, and I would not change a thing if I had to do it over again. I'm looking at it on Instagram uh, for the listeners out there. You can look at Kramer Hunts. That's with a C, Kramer Hunts. I'll also link it up on the show notes here uh, of the podcast. But he's got a just beautiful color to his rack and that big old square whale tail where it's just, I mean, where his main beam after the fifth point just, I mean, just dives off. Um, I'm sure on the hoof he looked fantastic. 
Oh, he did. The first time I laid eyes on him, he was actually crossing a canyon and going up the other side away from me. And as you know, everything looks better away. But when he turned and I saw those whale tails just dry, you know, like you said, dive off. And then I looked and his fists were, were good and his force were good. And then in my mind, I'm thinking, well, he's got to have real small thirds. But then I look and I go, well, they're pretty good too. And then you get to the fronts and it's like, got good fronts. I was like, you know, immediately in my mind, a, a number came into, into play. I'm like, that's got to be a 380 bull. And even though it was just a little bit shy of that, it didn't matter at that point. He had that look, and I said, man, that is a bull that I, I want all day long, every day. Let's go do it. And it just worked sure. out where where we did. So That's very, awesome. Very well, that's, that's fantastic. That's one of those kind of hunts that you dream about where you can be with your buddies and um, just, just you know, get focused on a, on one big bull, and um, you know, you ended up getting a big bull, um, and you know, the the bull you were after, even though you didn't get him, it made for a great hunt, and and it's one of those things that if you can enjoy with friends and family, that's 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 pretty sweet for sure, and you know, that big bull that got away, he's you know probably finished out the rut. Um, and, you know, bred a lot of cows, and uh, you never know. Maybe you'll draw the tag next year and get after them again. Uh, one could only hope. One could only hope. But you're you're exactly right. I think I ended up killing the bull on the 10th day of the hunt. Um, you know, so I got to experience it all, uh, from the highs of being in that frenzy when they're all screaming to the lows of nothing saying a word and just grinding it out and making the hunt. But... You know, I'm fortunate to have really good hunting friends and, and good family support and everything else. And like you said, you know, that's what makes it, and, and I feel very blessed to be able to do that. And I wouldn't change it even if I could. That's awesome. Uh, what do you have? So we're kind of here early November. Um, what is on your plate moving forward? What are you changing your focus to now after elk season is over with? I'm I'm slowly switching gears to to coos, which I'm absolute coos nut. And the first thing coming up is my daughter and I both have uh, a leftover coos tags down in southern Arizona that start next week. Uh, starts on Friday. I want to say that's the tenth. So we'll we'll be doing that. Um, fortunately, it falls on a holiday there, so my daughter doesn't have to miss school. Obviously, the focus for the first few days will be trying to fill her tag. And then uh, if we can get that done, we'll move on to see if I can find something that might tickle my fancy and draw a bullet. But if nothing else, I'm just looking forward to the time of getting back in the woods with her and, and you know, watching her become um, a better hunter. And as her hunting career has, has started to mature a little bit, uh, it, it's just it's so much fun being out there with her and it gets frustrating at times because she passes animals that i think she should be pulling the trigger on but uh, yeah. the good thing is we get to go out there together and chase them so that's definitely a lot of fun that i'm looking forward to and it's coming up next week um, we'll get that one done and then then it's on to getting ready for mexico i'm looking forward to getting down there and putting up some trail cameras and doing some scouting and trying to get that almighty inventory that I'm after to see what what the, what the ranches hold this year. You know, we had a great podcast, uh, I believe, after the season last year, and we talked a lot about 
your strategy for scouting those ranches and using the trail cameras and what have you. And I think we'll, we should probably um, do another podcast uh, before the season and you can kind of update us on how your strategy is going, how your inventory taking is going. Um, and I know I got a lot of feedback on that last episode. Uh, it, it, it's one of those things that when you've got a situation down there on what I call those flats or desert ranches, which, which you guys are, are hunting, um, the cameras play a pivotal role in being able to determine that inventory because of how thick the country is. It's, it's pretty hard to glass, especially when they're not rutting and moving around. So, I mean, this time of year, even on in into, into December, it's 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 pretty uh, it, it it's pretty hard to see what's there, is it not? Oh, without a doubt, it, it's very difficult, especially when they're not moving or covering covering much country, because there's just not enough vantage points to get up and spend much time behind glass and, and feel like you're actually covering the country you need to be covering. Um, because it is very flat, um, rolling hills, but even the hills are just so thick and, and covered with vegetation that you're not actually getting a good representation of what animals are there and what the quality is. So for us, especially down in these desert ranches that are this way, that we've we've found some success in is the cameras just, they're, they're the key to our success right now. And that's just so we know where the bucks are, what quality of bucks are there, and basically taking an inventory year after year on the bucks that make it out from one year to the next, how they've grown, how they've matured, um, and trying to get a basically an age platform for them that, okay, this buck's now three and a half, this buck might be four and a half, but he's really coming in as only this is all he's going to be, or this buck might blow up in, in the next year or two, so let's not you know concentrate on him let's look for something else and and the cameras have, have just been a pivotal part of what we're doing down there and the success that we've been experiencing the last few years so without those, there any, I don't think we could do it oh yeah it'd be a different different ball game for sure um it, it, it are there any specific bucks and and like i said we'll probably have to do just a, a as it gets a little closer to Mexico, you know, inventory podcast, but is there a couple of particular bucks that you feel like could have really blown up this year if if, if uh, things work out right? There are. Um, and my hunting partner and I, who hunts Mexico, uh, we hunt Mexico together. We've been texting each other back and forth, and as things you know, get closer, the intensity level increases. <laughs> and we've been going through some of those bucks. And there's a couple that we feel this year they should just be giants. Um, one of them was actually on our hit list last year, and we had named him Lefty because he had uh, four on the, on the left side, real tall tines, um, good G1s all the way through. But he was very very nocturnal and didn't really have much of a pattern and we feel like and we've kind of come to realize this that some of these areas where there's a big mature buck he seems to be the dominant buck and there's some others that kind of waiting in the wings so to speak for him to either move on or 
get past his prime or whatever it means. Yeah, or go to Arizona in the back <laughs> of the truck. Like that. Um, so we, we have a couple of those bucks this year. We're really excited to see what, one, what they've become, and two, how their their patterns have might have changed now that we've taken some of those bucks away from that area. And um, we actually have three that we're really targeting and we're hoping show up again and we can get some good pictures of that if everything goes right, they're going to be in that 120 type range, 115, 120, and maybe more. So we're excited. That's awesome. Sure. Typically, when do you normally get everything running down there by December 1st, or what? What's usually what's your usual time timeline? Uh, it is actually, and what we'll do, and we always try and target right after Thanksgiving to make a, a typically a week long trip down and and start covering the country and getting the cameras out. And what we found is they might not be really active, um, hitting the water and stuff like that very frequently, but it gives us enough time that when we go back in December, typically after Christmas, that we've got enough movement and enough time that we have a really good idea on what's going on. Um, I know and you we've can kind of hone your cameras from there. It, well, exactly. And then we'll, we'll definitely do a lot of movement of our cameras from the time we go down after Thanksgiving to the time we go down after Christmas because we might have areas that we just didn't get the type of bucks we want or the amount of deer, whether they be does or bucks, and we'll take those cameras and put them somewhere else that we're really focusing on where something might have showed up that we didn't expect or where those areas that we know historically have provided or produced really big bucks. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. Well, Phil, I can't wait to get you on again and, and talk more about the coos deer and it just gets the hair on the back of my neck standing up just talking about it. Um, and I'm, Dar and I are excited for January for our coos deer hunting as well, and, and uh, it's just great stuff. And congratulations on a, a, a fantastic hunt uh, there on your elk hunt and a beautiful bull. Can't wait to see him in person. Uh, and uh, it's always great uh, talking with you and, and uh, hearing you share your knowledge with us. And that's just uh, uh, been a fantastic podcast. And wish you wish you the best of success uh, on your uh, the um, leftover uh, deer hunt this weekend. Uh, thank you, Jay. I, I always appreciate talking to you. Um, you know because you you share that passion of the outdoors and. And I love it. Uh, I love to share it. The um, most of the time I get going and I can't stop. So I'm definitely excited <laughs> for what this uh, winter has to bring. And I've really enjoyed watching, uh, you know, your Instagram and your video feeds on the Otsex Ranch and the animals that you guys have been turning up. So I'll definitely be tuned in and following that. And it's always great talking to you. And I can't wait till we can get together and share some stories in person again. That sounds fantastic, buddy. Well, God bless you, and, and I'll catch you later, okay? And um, uh, for the listeners, uh, make sure to check the show notes uh, for to follow Phil on uh, Kramer Hunts on, on Instagram. And uh, I think also your elk hunt, uh, you have a video of your elk hunt on YouTube, correct? Uh, on Vimeo, I do, yes. Vimeo, uh -huh, which okay. I have the link on my, my Instagram to it as well, so. Okay, awesome. Well, Phil, take care, and uh, until I uh, talk to you next time, uh, ha have a great hunt, and, and we'll be talking soon, okay? Sounds good, Jay. Thank you. God bless.
Alright, bye.